Hi. <laughs> good morning, good morning. Is it raining yet? I haven't been outside. Not yet? My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm just honored that I get to talk with you for just a minute. Um, nearly every week here at the Parks Church, we uh, celebrate and talk about how much we love the Word of God. Right? If you've been with us, you, you've picked up on this. How we look to the Bible uh, as the primary source for knowing who God is. Uh, if you've joined us um, in partnership, which many of you have, uh, you've read the Partner Covenant. And on, on like, I think it's one of the first things on the Partner Covenant, uh, we have this written. To submit to the authority of scriptures as the final arbiter on all issues. This is our official position at the Parks Church. Um, this is how we approach the Bible. This is why we approach the Bible, why we dig into it every week, why we encourage you to do that in your homes. It's the heart of this church, this community, to be a community under the Word of God. That's, that's what we desire. That's the vision that we feel like God's given for His church, that we would be His church under the Word of God. But be honest. There's a statement like, submit to the authority of Scripture as the final arbiter on all issues. Does that make you bristle a little bit? Yes. yes. <laughs> Me too. It's okay. You can, you, can, you can say that. Does it make you a little, does it give you a pause? Are there questions that come to your mind? Uh, on everything? Really everything? I mean, I, I want to submit to these things because I feel like that's, but... Everything, every single issue, every single moment that the human experience can encounter, the Word of God says something about that. It's okay if you have questions. We want to set about in a, a short sermon series. Uh, we usually do uh, preach through the Word. We just got through Acts. How long were we in Acts? For a long time. Uh, where we just went verse by verse. But we want to stop, kind of step out of that for a second and... And talk about the Bible itself. Um, what is the Bible? Where do we get the Bible? Um, why should we trust it? Why should it be the authority? Why could it be the authority on every single issue? Um, so I, I want to set up the series, though, by talking a little bit about authority itself. Um, as pastors, we're always trying to assess um, what are the biggest challenges, what, what are the things that we need to consider uh, in, in this moment in time. Uh, what, what are, what are the, the, the challenges facing the church, facing just Christianity in general? Um, one of them could be uh, consumerism, right? That, that seems like a big challenge to the church, where the church is reduced to a product to be consumed. Um, maybe the biggest challenge is our relevance to culture itself. Uh, that, that could be, maybe there's too much distance in between uh, us and the culture. We're too detached. Maybe we're in a bubble. Have we created a bubble and not been outward oriented? Are we, are we even addressing the questions that culture is asking? That's a, that seems like an important thing, right? It's a challenge to the church. Um, maybe it's technology. Keeping up with the pace of technology. Good night. It just, it just keeps going faster and faster and faster and faster. 
Are we keeping pace? Do we need to keep pace? Are we being left behind? Is it okay if we're left behind? These are questions that come to my, come to my mind, but I think there's something more fundamental, more under the surface that is the, the most significant challenge to the church moving forward. I think the greatest challenge to the church is this issue of authority. It's kind of an authority crisis we have in our culture. Where authority comes from, how it should be understood, how it works. Right? Does it feel like our culture is pretty conflicted on this? Maybe they're not actually conflicted. We're just offering something that that causes the confliction. Um, we, We live in a time where the church has lost its authority in the culture around us. The church is in decline, and the statistics are troubling. Um... It's estimated that in the next 30 years, 50% of churches in this nation will close. And around 42 million people will walk away from the church in that time. It feels like the church has lost, to some degree, its seat at the table. Do you feel that? Lost its voice. Here's the thing. We, we know who is writing this whole story, Right? We know who created everything. We know who holds the, the pen. We know the, the author in authority. We, we know who that is. And it's our heart to communicate the story of God to the, the world, to everyone. We want, we want the world to deeply know the truth of God. But the current culture says, that's not my authority. Uh, the church won't speak into my life. And you feel that. Charles Taylor, he further defines, defines this issue in this way. Our culture wants freedom from anything and anyone outside of the self. We want freedom from anything, any authority that's not numero uno. We want freedom from larger societal structures. We want freedom from the previous generation. We want freedom from religious authority, and we want freedom from political authority. So in essence, when people look at the future of their life, uh, they're not willing to entrust it to any of those things. No longer are people asking who is in charge. They're not asking that anymore. They're saying, I'm in charge. Who can I trust? The instinct to mistrust the world around us isn't completely misinformed, though, right? Larger societal structures are usually just manipulated by the power-hungry or the powers that be. As you get older, you start to see the faults of your parents' generation, the previous generation. Uh, Maybe you've had a broken family, and, and you just can't trust that system anymore. Religious institutions are just as full of corruption and scandal as any other institution, right? You have the the, the Catholic Church scandal. You have evangelical leaders falling morally all the time, and there's just so much scandal to it, and and it's heightened by the hypocrisy of it all. Um, And I don't even know where to start with uh, political authority. 
I don't, I don't know where to go with that. There's, it's obvious that there's, that's becoming increasingly, increasingly hopeless. So people are left with trying to find the only thing authentic and trustworthy in themselves. But deep down, I think we all know, if given enough time, we're going to mess, mess it up. Deep down. This isn't new, though. As long as there has been humans, there's been trouble with authority. There's been confusion with authority. Um, So I want to do a a really quick history moment here. Um, So bear with me. Remember the garden scene? Let's start at the beginning. (laughs) What is Eve and Adam tempted with? Did God really say? Can you really trust him on everything? Should he be the authority on everything? It's just a question. And you move quickly uh, to the people of God, trying to figure out how to be a nation in this crazy world that they were living in. And they looked around and, and all these other nations had kings. So they go to God and say, God, we want a king like all the other nations. We want that type of authority system, which underscores... Their doubt that Yahweh has what is good for them. That is good and has good for them. They were confused. They were troubled by authority. You zoom forward to the time of Jesus and his disciples. He's uh, trying to establish, he is establishing uh, his church. Even though his disciples, uh, they're like, now's the time, guys. Now's the time. We're taking back the power. We're going to be over Rome. The Messiah's come. They're, they're, they're going, we're going to have the authority. Uh, Peter even says, no one's going to kill you, Jesus. You know, you can think he's going, we're going to, we're going to kill them. You know, like, that's, that's the plan. We're going to be, be over them, and which Jesus calls him Satan, which is never good. And, and you, you find that it turns out that Jesus um, wants power and authority to be wielded in a totally different way. And he's trying to get that through our heads. However, 300 years later, we witness the evolution of this oppressed minority, the Christians, coming to be an empowered majority in Rome. In the year 380, you see the Edict of Thessalonica under Theodosius I. Um, So Constantine, his predecessor, uh, a few emperors back, gets saved. And then the result is... Theodosius establishes the Edict of Thessalonica, which basically says Christianity is now the official state church of the Roman Empire to the exclusion of all other religions. This it seems good in a way, um, but inevitably when Roman citizenship is linked to Christianity, an outcome would be that the citizens are required to fight against the Empire's enemies. So the empire's enemies are all of a sudden God's enemies. You see the authority confusion there? This is where we have some of the first Christian writings on just war. Uh, Augustine trying to establish biblical principles, essentially justifying the use of force in God's name. Uh, His writings were taken way too far, but there you have it. And then consider the Christian Crusades, another 600 years, the 11th and 12th centuries, 
um, these, this is a holy campaign uh, deemed to rescue Jerusalem and the Middle East from Islam. But it's often failed to mention that, that the rescue also meant that the Western church would have control of the Middle East. Again, there was power to be gained in the name of God, worldly strategy and confusion on authority. And you move forward to the inquisitions that uh, the, the Italian, the Spanish inquisitions are all set about to rid the cultures of heresy and non-Christians unless they converted. In the multiple inquisitions that happened uh, uh, over centuries, uh, uh, empowered clergy sought to cleanse society from evil. And this led to coercion, which is not the way of Jesus. It led to forced conversions, which are not conversions. It led to forced baptisms and countless executions. A couple hundred years later, you have a response to the Reformation. You have the 30 years war. And then you have the Dutch revolt, which is an 80 years war, uh, in which half of Europe's citizens were killed. Half. All of these conflicts and campaigns fighting to maintain and keep Christian power and authority in place. Popes, kings, monarchies with greatly confused ideas of authority and God. Some that were outright evil. Stay with me here. It's hard then to overstate the significance of the Reformation. In Martin Luther's 1517 Reformation, there was a great shift of authority. You see this? There's a great shift of authority. Essentially, the Reformation, which centered on sola scriptura, scriptura sola, only the Bible, authority was restored back to the scriptures itself. So now the common man and woman had access via the the printing press and this moment to the word of God themselves. Re-establishing the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers we find in 1 Peter, which is a good thing. Uh, It it can be kind of defined like this. Uh, There's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge, the presence, and the forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. All believers have the right to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of Scripture, which is how it should be. Amen to that, right? We could say amen to that. I'm not dressed like a pope right now. I don't have to do... You can, you, can, you can question what I say yourself, and you can go to the Word. That's a good thing. But there were some practical problems, right? This is the 15th century. Not very many people knew how to read. That's a problem, right? Uh, not to mention application and interpretation. Uh, author and Christian historian Phyllis Tickle, which is a great name, uh, she says this, The Protestant imperative toward every believer's being able to read the Holy Writ for him or herself excited the drive toward literacy and in turn accelerated the drive toward rationalism and enlightenment. And from there straight on into science and technology and literature and governments that characterize our lives today. There were, of course, some disadvantages. So that's kind of where we find ourselves today. So I say all of that to say... We've always struggled with uh, the question of authority. We've always been tempted to doubt God and trust in man. Trust in the systems of man. Trust in ourselves as the final authority. It's not new. But it doesn't work. And again, if given enough time, we all know that we're going to mess things up. 
This is precisely why we need an authority that is outside of us and not within us. Jeremiah 17, 9. I think we have it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So that's what's within us. Uh, is a sickness, sin. Uh, who can understand it? God. He created you. He knows you. And he's given us his word so that we may know him. Hebrews 4.12 says this, and I think we have it too. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how God speaks to us about how our heart works and how it doesn't work and how it's broken and how it needs to be made a heart of flesh The word of God, it pierces through the confusion. It's the truth that we were talking about and singing about. So when it comes to authority, we've got to find it outside of ourselves. I hope you can see that it's not a new struggle, though. Give yourself grace. It's not a new struggle. Um, Because of sin in the human heart, there's a question mark in it. It's an ancient echo from the garden. Did God really say? Can I really trust him with everything? Is his heart for me really good? Okay? We have a jaded past. A little bit of a checkered past with authority. Um, So, um, if we're saying, as a church, as a people, that that should be God's word. That the Bible should be the authority. The next natural question is, why the Bible? Why the Bible? So at this point, I'm tempted to give you some facts. I really kind of want to give you some facts about the Bible. I want to make an argument from the historicity of the text, the, the, uh, the, the, the reliability of the manuscripts, and so on. For instance, people say we have, there's so many versions of the Bible. How do I know? How do I even know? Could, we, could you even know? And that is exhausting, right? If you think of it that way. However, there's not many versions of the Bible. There's many translations, but there's one version of the Bible. And we can go back over a thousand years, and in a museum in Russia, there is the Leningrad Codex. And in that codex, you've got the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's it's all there. That's significant. That's a thousand years. But here's something really cool, and this is why I think the the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are just the, the, the greatest find of all time is that you go back then another over another thousand years 1200 something years and you look at the 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 fragments of exodus and then you compare it to a thousand years later to the leningrad codex and they're remarkably the same crazy continuity in everything and you're going how does this happen it's because it's god's word it's not just a book. Doesn't, that doesn't happen in literature, y'all. 2,000 year continuity doesn't happen. But I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> what 
What I want to do is I want to take a different approach. <clears throat> I want to get at why we can and why we should trust the Bible. Not so much on facts behind its authority, but how we could get to a place where we joyfully submit and trust it. People under the word. The Bible is basically one giant story. It's the story of God and humanity and how God consistently pursues and rescues a people bent on going their own way. That's the story. That's, that's the, the story. Uh, people bent on going their own way and then skeptical along the way of God's love toward them. The Bible is 66 different books with several different authors written over a thousand year period with crazy continuity, as I said. There's three main types of literature in the Bible. There's narrative, there's poem and songs, and then there's prose or discourse. Um, all of which, all of which are telling one story. There's 43% of the Bible is narrative. So almost half of your Bible is narrative. Um, 33% is poetry and songs because God loves singing. <laughs> and it does something to us and for us. And then 24%, which is that prose, which would be the, the normal modern vernacular of the day. It would be the news of the day in, in a way. So we, <clears throat> when we approach the Bible, uh, we have to know that we're not coming to one book, but we're coming to a book of books that are all utilizing different literary styles at any given time. But not only the different literary styles, they're in the ancient literary style of that day, right? So you go back and read Renaissance literature, and it's different than our literature. You go back further and further, and you see there's just different periods, different styles. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, how's everyone's allergies? <coughs> um, so, yeah, tradition's done in their day. So when we read uh, Genesis, when we read the creation narrative... Uh, the story seems like it's got a whole bunch of stuff missing, right? You, if you really read it and you're like, wait a minute. How many days? What? what? How does this work? Big things in the narrative seem to be missing or confusing. One of the reasons why we feel this way is because we read it through our modern lens of narrative. That's not how we would write a narrative. Um, which, according to Eugene Peterson, is quite lacking. And I wanted to read this quote from his book, Eat This Book. <clears throat> he says this. We live today in a world impoverished of story. So it is not surprising that many of us have picked up the bad habit of extracting truths from the stories we read. We summarize principles that we can use in a variety of settings at our discretion. We distill a moral that we use as a slogan on a poster or a motto on our desk. We are taught to do this in our schools so that we can pass examinations on novels and plays. It is no wonder that we continue this abstracting, story-mutilating practice when we read our Bibles. We say, stories are not serious. Stories are for children and campfires. So, we continuously convert stories into the serious speech of information and motivation. We hardly notice that we have lost the form, story being the form. The form that is provided to shape our lives largely and coherently. Our spirituality shaping text, the Bible, is reduced then to disembodied fragments of truth and insight. Dismembered bones of information and motivation. 
Wow. Dismembered bones is what we usually get from the Bible. That's what he's saying. Because we don't understand the point and purpose of story. That it's creating a, a, a painting and a tapestry that, that brings coherency to our life. So when you come upon a, a, a question or a, a probability uh, argument, you're confused. Because you don't know how, how it fits in the story. And you can't see how it fits in your story. I can't see how it fits in the grander story. So when we would write, if we were to write Genesis, we would, we would focus on factoids. We'd focus on detailed information. But the ancient Jewish writer was focused on invitation. Inviting us into the story. Beckoning us to keep reading. Keep reading. Beckoning us to become a part of the story. That's the purpose. Peterson goes on to say, when we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see... Uh, we are... Uh, sorry. When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves and where our stories begin to make sense. Is this making sense? So let me, uh, let me say it this way. The way the Bible is written, one large story, is just as important as what's written in it. So how we approach the Bible really, really matters. Our approach and posture towards God's word will greatly impact whether or not we feel like we can trust it. Okay, that's what I'm getting at. I'm going to say it again. Our approach and posture towards God's word will greatly impact whether or not we feel like we can trust it. Trust it as the final authority on all things. If you read it and it seems incoherent or contradictory, you will be less inclined to trust it. The same thing would happen if you read U2 lyrics like you read a law book. That would be confusing. If you picked up Jane Austen and tried to read it like a dictionary, you'd be skeptical, confused, and you'd put it back on the shelf. And this is often how we approach the Bible. We're upset, confused, and then we distrust God. Did God really say? Currently, we're used to taking in information in a quick visit to a news site, 24-hour news cycle, blogs, short-form articles, social media scrolling. So it makes sense that we struggle with an ancient text. Okay? It's okay. We're going to work at it. We're going to figure it out. We're going to dig. Be encouraged. Our culture doesn't, it's, it's, it's hard to receive authority through an ancient text. And that's okay. God's with us because he sent us his spirit to illuminate all of Jesus' teachings. The whole scripture. We have the Holy Spirit to help us see. So a way forward then for us. The posture of the psalmist. 
I think this is a way forward for us. The posture of the psalmist. The psalms embody the entire human spectrum of emotion and experience. But they deeply help us understand and trust the, this, this epic biblical story. The reason songs and poems make up a third, a third of our Bible is because of what poetry does. It does what narrative can't. Poetry gets us out of the mental ruts that we get in, the lies sometimes, uh, and gets us to see a bigger picture, right? You've probably experienced this with a song. You're just like, that's what I've been trying to say. I've been trying to say that. You've, you've experienced that with poem. You're like, I, f- I don't fully understand everything, but I feel this deeply. And I feel like I see my life. I can like zoom out and see my life in the trajectory of a story. So they really help us, and God knows that. It's not just receiving info, but it allows you to deeply feel and perceive the larger story going on around us and in us. And the Psalms do just that. Let's start Psalm 1. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 1. We're going to get to some Bible here, folks. It's weird to talk about the Bible and not use the Bible that much, but I'm trying to do something. <clears throat> Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he or she does. They prosper. Blessed is the person who thinks about the word of God day and night. Like a tree planted by the source, a tree that lives and thrives as it was created to be. The one who trusts in God and trusts in his word flourishes. What I want you to see here is that Psalm 1 actually describes to us how to read the Bible. How? You meditate on it day and night. (laughs) You don't try to do what Eugene Peterson was talking about, extract the morals and the truths, even though there are those in the Bible. But you meditate on it day and night. Meditative reading is how you read the Bible. That's, that's how you have to read the Bible. If you try to do it any other way, it will get cumbersome, confusing, and you'll be frustrated and you'll stop doing it. It's slow. It involves study. It's lifelong. It doesn't read like a blog or a social media feed. There are no memes unless you have a Bible with pictures. But it's for everyone. It's for everyone. As you read the scripture as one massive story, it begins to become your story. You begin to see that not only is God trustworthy, but his way, the way of Jesus, is for our good. 
It's for your flourishing. It's how you know how to live. It's how you know how to see yourself. It's how you know how to see others. And it's how you know how to see God himself. It's the way of freedom. It's the way of peace. It might then make sense that the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, which I will now read for you. Just kidding. You need like 15, 20 minutes to read Psalm 119. I suggest this week, go into a quiet place and read it out loud. And and you will see um, something very clear. It's 176 verses devoted to what? The rules of God. Weird, right? To the law of the Lord. And it goes on and on. Following the Hebrew alphabet. But it celebrates the word of God like we celebrate freedom itself. It's got a 4th of July kind of feel to it. If you follow. There's an exclamation point uh, almost in every stanza. I love your commandments. Your statutes have Have been my song. I will keep your law forever and ever. Your rules are my comfort. How about this one? My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. (laughs) Feels a little weird, right? Maybe the psalmist understands something we don't. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. This is a psalm of David. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Amen to that. Uh, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Better than anything this life has to offer. Your word, your law. And then Psalm 16. Boundary lines. Psalm 16. Verse 5 and 6. David's writing this when he's being pursued by Saul. His life is in trouble. There is no promise uh, fulfillment happening at this point. Um, Running for his life. He says this, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I'm so thankful for your lines. I'm so thankful for your boundaries. If I trusted myself, I'd be in a world of hurt. I'd hurt everyone around me. I'd hurt myself. And I'd end up not trusting you, God. But I have decided to become like a child and trust that you are a good father and you create safe boundary lines for me that allow me to live life fully 
the psalmist says that your plan is better than my plan. It's better that you write the story than me. It's humble submission to the one who actually holds the pen. If there's anything that you could get, it's that we don't hold the pen. He does. Man, to have the conviction of the psalmist. Here's the crazy thing about the psalmist is they didn't, they didn't even get to see Jesus fulfill the fulfillment of the law come in Jesus. What faith, right? We get to look back and see the psalmist and then see the fulfillment of their hope, the fulfillment of Isaiah and, and the prophecies in Jesus. We get to see that. We get to see the, the, the longer story. We get to read. It's like Old Testament stops in the middle of the story. And then we pick up with Jesus and he's like, I fulfilled it all. Listen to my apostles. Come follow me and listen to my apostles. They're going to write down some things. <laughs> they're going to write some letters to one another and to the churches. And it's going to illuminate what I, I was saying and what I'm doing on the earth and what I will do. So we get to trust Jesus as he's identified in John 1. What is he identified as? The Word. The Word made flesh. He who comes to rescue us from ourselves. And this, friends, is, is the heart of this church. We believe this is God's vision for authority playing out. Within the context of our, quest, our, our questioning heart, did God really say that we would be a community, a people, under the word? Following Jesus and the word in all things. To meditate on and read the scriptures our whole life. You don't have to figure it out in one setting, in one Bible study, in one moment. In one year. But read the Bible as a story. Start at the beginning. Go through it. Follow the reading plan that we have. It gets you through the Bible. And trust that as you go through the story, you'll start to see the story. You'll start to see that you're invited into the story. And eventually you'll see that this is your story. We want to humbly submit to it and to others, to each other. In hopes that we would be as trees planted by the source, enduring this life well, and worshiping Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, I don't know if we can begin to know the depth of it. Um, for your word endures forever. And we're, we're temporary. We've got these brains that are limited. And we've got a sin disposition that is obtrusive. <laughs> so help us to be able to trust you through the doubt, through the questions. Let us have the, the vigor 
to try to answer some of the questions, try to get to the bottom of questions about your word. But ultimately, let us, like the psalmist, see your word like a story. Help us to see how we, we fit into this, fit into your story. God, I pray that you would help us as we uh, desire to be a church that's beautiful, submit to the whole word, the whole counsel of your word, and not just parts that feel comfortable or we feel inclined to, but truly be under the whole word of God, submitting to it and finding so much joy and so much delight as your children so we can get to the place where we could say the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You hold my lot. And that's a good thing. In Jesus' name, amen.